0: This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. Later in the hour, we look back at the 40 years that have passed since scientists first sounded the alarm on the dark, cold threat of nuclear winter. Plus, healthcare systems routinely fail deaf patients. We'll look at one hospital that's changing their approach. But first, this week, an FDA committee cleared the way for a potentially revolutionary cure for sickle cell disease. Yes, a potential cure for sickle cell. If given final approval, the treatment could be the first to use CRISPR gene editing in humans. Joining me now to give us more details on this new treatment Another top science news of the week is Umair Irfan, staff writer for Vox based in Washington, D.C. Welcome back, Umer. Hi, Ira. Thanks for having me. Let's get right into this story about sickle cell. Give me some details here. Right. This is a treatment called
1: ExaCell, and As you mentioned, it's based on CRISPR, the gene editing technique. The thing to know about sickle cell disease is that it's caused by a genetic mutation of just one letter, and scientists have long reasoned that if they could swap and correct that typo, they could potentially cure this disease. That one-letter mutation, it causes the red blood cells to shrivel up into these sickle or crescent shapes, and that causes the cells to clog up blood vessels. That leads to a lot of other problems, things like strokes, Uh, organ damage, and even excruciating pain. And so that makes sickle cell a pretty debilitating disease. So this is pretty exciting that they've developed not just a therapy, not just a treatment, but a cure.
0: And this is the first time they're using CRISPR in people. Is that right? Well, it's the first time we're going to have an actual approved therapy or an actual uh,
1: treatment that's going to be approved by regulators. You know, CRISPR has been getting a lot of hype. There's a lot of potential that we've been hearing about for a few years, but this right. is very likely to be the first one that's going to enter the real
0: world that might actually make a difference in people's lives. And just how expensive is this treatment? Because we are always looking out for these new treatments. Sometimes they go through the roof.
1: Well, right. And also because we're in the United States and because of our healthcare system, everything has a price tag. We don't have a specific tag for this, but some estimates are that this is going to be costing about millions of dollars per patient. Now, the rationale is that, one, this is a complicated treatment to administer, and also that this is a cure, not just a treatment. So this will be a one-and-done type deal. And also the pharmaceutical companies, they have to recoup their costs among a small handful of patients. This is not a very common disease. And so that means per patient, it's going to be very expensive. The question then is how much insurers and the government will pick up the tab to help people who need this treatment
0: close the gap. Okay. So give us a bit of the timeline here when we might find out if the FDA does give final approval.
1: Well, the advisors this week, as you noted, voted to give this drug the go-ahead. And the FDA usually accepts their advice and they're meeting again on December 8th. And so very likely in early December, we'll get a final verdict.
0: Okay, let's move on to this next story, which is a little bit less optimistic, and that is for the first time in 20 years, infant mortality rates have increased in the U.S. That is not very good news, is it? How big an increase are we seeing? It's an increase from about
1: 5.44 infant deaths per every 1,000 births in 2021 to 5.6 in 2022. That may seem small, but one, it is statistically significant, and it is notable because it's an increase because for a long time, infant mortality was decreasing in the United States. Now, in the U.S., we've been kind of grim when it comes to these uh, infant mortality statistics. The US infant mortality rate is roughly double compared to other wealthy countries in our peer group. And also, the US has an abnormally high maternal mortality rate. So moms giving birth also have a fairly high mortality rate. But the trends were moving in the right direction until the past couple of years. And what do we think is causing this uptick? Well, you may recall in the past couple of years, we did have the COVID-19 pandemic. The infections were part of it, but the researchers that were looking at this said that it was probably the wider societal disruptions as well. It wasn't simply the people getting sick from COVID, but it was also people who were not getting regular health appointments, but also things like inflation and the increase in the cost of living. That's making, you know, moms and parents— basically choose between paying for necessities like rent and paying for things like preventative health care. And that means that they're not catching complications early, which in turn leads to more problems with birth delivery and
0: in infancy. The next story you brought us is about the auto industry. This week, the United Auto Workers, the UAW reached tentative agreements with automakers ending the strike. You reported on the impact of these agreements on the shift to making electric vehicles why is that important
1: well it's important because the workers and the social component of the shift towards clean energy is turning out to be a much bigger impediment to that transition than simply the technology. It's not simply about making better batteries or cheaper electric cars, but addressing the needs of the workers that make them. This was the conclusion of the national academies. They put out a report last week looking at the things that we need to do in the United States to transition and to accelerate the shift to decarbonizing the economy. And one of the things that they warned about was that the US social safety net is really weak and there aren't a lot of great worker protections. The UAW strikes kind of reflected that because Among the issues that they were trying to get better agreements on were things like making sure that workers in electric vehicle plants and in battery manufacturing were covered by contracts, but also that workers that lost their jobs making conventional vehicles also had some leverage in getting things
0: like severance and training for new jobs. Yeah, because this is something we have to prepare for and be ready for as we shift to an electric car economy.
1: Right, and it's not just electric cars, but it, you know, it's things like transmission lines, it's power lines, it's being able to install insulation and highly efficient appliances. There's a whole cadre of workers that are desperately needed. And the clean energy sector of the economy is growing. There's a lot of demand for workers, but very few workers in the fossil fuel sector or in the traditionally dirty sectors are making that jump. If you look at the past 20 years, it's been less than 1%. And so one of the more urgent challenges for our economy going forward is how do you help people make that jump rather than simply dislocating people, having layoffs in one area and jobs in another? How do you make sure that the people who are losing jobs, can get some of the new ones and reap some of the benefits. That's going to be the big challenge going forward.
0: Yeah, yeah, that certainly is. Let's stick, Romer, within the energy sector here a bit longer because there's big news in nuclear fusion this week. The largest fusion operating in the world went online uh, this week in Japan. This one is of the tokamak design, different than the last big news we got. Tell us about that
1: right you may recall earlier this year we got the news from lawrence livermore lab that they achieved more energy out of a fusion reactor than they put in that reactor uses lasers to compress fusion fuel. They call that inertial confinement. The Takamak design that you described here is actually kind of like a giant magnetic donut. It's a donut-shaped chamber surrounded by powerful magnets, and it heats up the fuel into really high temperatures until it forms a plasma. And the idea is if the fuel is moving really hot and really fast, that increases the chances of atoms colliding with each other and sticking to each other and triggering fusion reactions. This reactor in Japan is called JT60SA. It's now going to be the largest version of these devices, but it's still not quite big enough to be a reactor and that this design will be helped to be used to design a more commercially viable machine.
0: And there is a bigger one under development,
1: is there not? Right. This machine is called ITER. It's currently under construction in southern France. And so this new reactor that's being fired up in Japan, what they learn from there is going to be used to help design and implement the fusion reaction there that they're building in France. And from there, they hope to eventually build a machine that will actually put electrons on the power grid.
0: Yeah, there's still one big nit in this story and that even though the the energy you need to put in the whole Technology is still a lot more than you get out. I mean, what you have to take off the grid is still far above anything you've made.
1: Right. And especially with the Takamaks, you know, you're heating up this fuel to temperatures hotter than the sun. You need to get it moving really, really fast in a very confined space. And that requires a lot of energy to get started. So, yes, you can trigger the fusion reaction, but the critical balancing act that you have to do is to get more energy out than you put in. And right now, they
0: haven't quite gotten there with the Takamak design. Yeah. All right. Your next bit of news is actually from about four and a half billion years ago. Scientists have uncovered some intriguing evidence about the origins of our moon. This is really very interesting, has been interesting for years about where did the moon come from, but now some new evidence for that.
1: That's right. You know, one of the most popular theories for how the moon originated was that A protoplanet called Theia collided with Earth, and it caused a whole bunch of disruption. And then eventually, once the dust settled and they cooled off, we had the Earth and the Moon. That made a lot of sense, but there wasn't a lot of forensic evidence for it, that we weren't able to find the debris or or just some of the marks of it. But it turns out that some of the scars from that collision may be deep inside the Earth. There was a new study this week that looked at the layer between the mantle and the Earth's core, about 1,800 miles below the surface, and they found these blobs that were basically kind of consistent, or they thought consistent with something that might have been left over from this collision. The scientists, they did some computer simulations, and they found that that actually did line up, that essentially that these uh, blobs in the Earth's um, deep inside the Earth were perhaps, you know, leftover residue from that collision that formed the
0: moon. That is really cool. The moon is certainly still mysterious for a lot of us.
1: Yeah. And I think kind of what's interesting is that about 10% of Theia, this protoplanet, may actually still be deep inside the Earth. So we still have a significant amount of that collision inside our own
0: planet. Okay. That is cool. Let's finally move on to a story that falls into the category of very weird animal facts. It turns out that starfish, now known as sea stars, they don't have arms. What do they have if they're not arms? They're basically giant heads. <laughs> giant.
1: Well, one of the scientists described them as a disembodied head walking on the seafloor on its lips. Um, And so the reason they came (laughs) to that conclusion is that, yeah, you know, you look at a starfish and it doesn't seem very analogous to us as humans, but we try to draw those connections anyway. But it turns out that's kind of flawed. When they looked at the genetics of starfish, particularly in development, and they attached markers to their cells, they found out that the cells that were distributed throughout the starfish's body were mainly cells associated with what they would consider a head rather than arms. Mm -hmm. And so from the embryo to the full-grown adult, It looks like most of its body basically fits within the description of what they would consider, you know, a a head region rather than things that would be more considered limbs. And so it's forcing scientists to kind of reconsider how
0: these animals plan their bodies. That is really, really cool. I'm not going to be walking on my lips, but using them to thank you and and say goodbye. Omer Fon, staff writer at Vox based in Washington, D.C. Thanks for joining us.
1: My pleasure, Ira. Thanks for having me.